God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And death will be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. Those are words we need. Many of us woke up this morning to headlines of new tears. Tears that are brutally continuous with tears that we have been shedding for years and yet always new. Tears of another mass shooting. This one in Buffalo. This one perpetrated by an 18-year-old man, a young man, a white supremacist who chose on a given afternoon to drive two hours from his hometown to the big city, to go to a black neighborhood, to a supermarket, and open fire with a gun inscribed with a racial epithet, having left behind him a manuscript, a screed of neo-Nazism and white supremacy, and chose to kill several black folks as well as some others. Tears being shed in Buffalo today. Tears that join and flow together with all kinds of other tears around the world for violence, for tears in Ukraine, tears in Afghanistan. Many, many tears. A lot of those tears and a lot of those Wars have something to do with nationalism or with ethnic conflicts. Only ours this morning, of those I mentioned, has to do with white supremacy, which is not the only form of racism or oppression in the world, but it's ours. And it's one that is most influential around the world, thanks to the history of European colonialism. We say the words white supremacy, and maybe what leaps to mind are symbols like what that young person included in his manuscript. Black sun runic imagery taken from the Third Reich. Screeds and manuscripts. But white supremacy runs deeper than that. And it's more subtle than that. It's two words that simply mean white people and the idea that white people are better or get better or deserve better or are higher up. And that as an idea and as a frank reality of conditions on the ground that have been created by white people is deeply, deeply embedded in our society and in our history. (coughs) Many of you know that we have a team at Incarnation that has been working together with the Redbud Resource Group, which is a native organization here in Sonoma County, to learn more about our history in California, to learn how we can be better neighbors with our indigenous community, to craft some form of a land acknowledgement that we could use here at Incarnation that acknowledges the history of these lands and who they have belonged to, but mostly to learn, to build relationships. And as that team has done its work, I've been reading a book called American Genocide by Benjamin Madley, a book that was recommended by our leaders, a scholarly book, a densely footnoted work of history 
And it tells stories of California, of the 1840s and 1850s and the years that followed. It tells about the two white settlers named Kelsey and Stone who had a ranch next to Clear Lake in Lake County, kind of in our neighborhood, who kept dozens of natives there in conditions of servitude to work for them. And at one point, a couple of the native workers rose up and killed them, killed Kelsey and Stone. And what happened in response to that was that teams of white vigilantes began to circulate through the region. Some of them started in Napa, went up the valley to Calistoga, and then across the mountains to Santa Rosa, killing as they went. We don't know how many they killed or what quite happened here in Santa Rosa because there weren't newspapers yet. All we have is some letters and records from those who perpetrated the killings. But meanwhile, the US military was creating an expedition. It prepared for several months and then went north from Benicia towards Clear Lake. They massacred several Indian villages as they went. And when they reached Clear Lake, they found a village of about maybe 200 Pomo people camped on an island in the lake. Women and children, men, perhaps a few who knew something about the murders of Stone and Kelsey and many who had nothing to do with it and perhaps everyone. And they opened fire on the village. We don't know how many hundreds were killed that day. But the Bloody Island Massacre is part of our local history. It may be something that you know about well or something that you've never heard of. And it was one of many, many similar episodes in the settling of California by Europeans. While those things were happening, educated, wealthy men were meeting in Monterey to put together a constitution for California. They debated for about two weeks about whether non-whites should have the right to vote. A few spoke in favor, but by the end, the answer was no. A little later, agents of the federal government came to California to negotiate with tribal leaders with the hope of creating treaties. The treaties would establish reservations where portions of the ancestral lands of the tribes would be set aside, not as much as they had had, but some to be native property in perpetuity. The negotiations went on and the native leaders decided to accept the treaties, to cede portions of their land and other things, and to wait for the federal government to give them their reservations. The treaty then went to the United States Senate and meanwhile, lobbyists representing the white population of California, the settlers and miners, lobbied the US Senate and succeeded in having the treaties not ratified. And so although the tribes had already given up much in the hopes of receiving their reservations, it didn't happen. These things are our history, our neighborhood. They are what have helped to create the society we live in today in 21st century California. They're not too distant from us. This morning we read 
an amazing story from the Acts of the Apostles. Here is Peter. He's praying. And he sees something come down from heaven towards him. A great white sheet. Kind of like that sheet on the altar. And I wonder what he imagined was going to be inside. Here it comes, down from the skies. Gold? Manna? Sacred scrolls? And when it reaches him, as he peers over the edge into the sheet, he sees unclean beasts. Not what he was expecting. Food forbidden for him to eat because it was unclean. And a voice says, up, Peter, kill and eat. Food that was unclean representing a sign from God that for Peter, the boundaries of who he had considered unclean were about to expand, were about to explode. A sign that God was doing something new. And as I read this story and Peter goes back to his friends, what I'm struck by is the speed of their conversion in this story. Very reasonably, they say, why did you go to the uncircumcised and eat with them? Why did you break our law? Why did you transgress the boundary of the covenant? And Peter describes what happens and the way that the Holy Spirit has been showered on the Gentiles and his friends praise God. And they say, well, then God has granted even to the Gentiles this new life. Peter's friends, it seems, are not racists, not Jewish supremacists. They are faithful to Torah. They have a distinct identity, one that is sacred, one that is a gift from God. They are covenant people. And in what is happening through Jesus Christ, they see that something new is happening and that God is indeed pushing out the boundaries so that the covenant includes a wider circle. And this creates a movement, a movement that could write in its scriptures that in Jesus there is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer male and female, no longer slave or free. A movement that understood itself as creating a new human race, a new race of human beings. In the book of Revelation, in another place, it says that God is creating a royal priesthood, the church, out of every family and language, and people, and nation. It's an image of heaven. It's an image of God's holy city. And it's not about sameness. These tribes and peoples and nations are apparently retaining their identity in heaven. Heaven is a place of diversity, unity in diversity, not a place of sameness and flatness, but a place where all belong. There is a homogeneity about whiteness. There is a way in which the idea of whiteness wants to seduce us into imagining a default humanity and every other humanity as a variation from that norm. There is a way in which whiteness wants us to flatten out humanity. Perhaps if you're white like me, you've had the experience of filling out a form or having someone ask you your ethnicity. And maybe you've answered, well, I'm not really anything. Or, 
Well, I'm just American. I heard someone answer that. It's the seduction of the myth of whiteness. I would dare to say that in heaven there is no whiteness. Not no white people. I believe there are white people in heaven. And not no Frenchness or Germanness or Italianness or Polishness. Because I believe there are cultures in heaven, a brilliant diversity. Some of them the cultures that have become labeled as white. But not whiteness. No longer this flattening, this homogenizing, this colonizing, this dominant identity that creates destruction and bloodshed in its wake. I believe in heaven there is reconciliation. But not a cheap reconciliation. Not a papering over of what has happened in Buffalo and at Clear Lake and in Ukraine and everywhere else. Heaven is big enough to hold our tears. A few years ago, I got to know a priest named Suzanne Guthrie who lives in this diocese. She's a writer and a contemplative, lives near Sacramento. And I read a story that Suzanne wrote about God's love and reconciliation. She writes, a friend of mine who served in the military during World War II and who is now a nun was once at a conference with two men a German and an American. As they wiped dishes one evening after dinner, they exchanged stories about the war. The American told of the horror he felt as a young pilot during a particularly savage bombing of a city in Germany. He had orders to bomb the hospital, which he would know by the large red cross painted on the roof. The second man, after regaining his composure, revealed that his wife had been giving birth to their baby in that very hospital when it was being bombed. My friend tiptoed out of the room as the two men fell into each other's arms, weeping. Imagine being in heaven at the end of the world, where we might fall weeping upon one another waves of reconciliation breaking upon us as we adjust ourselves to this dimension of pure love. As I read Suzanne's story this week, I noticed something I hadn't noticed before about our passage from Revelation. It says that God will end all mourning and all pain. But it doesn't say quite the same thing about the tears. It says God will wipe away all tears. And I found myself imagining that maybe there are tears in heaven. Tears of repentance, tears of love, tears of healing. And that God is continually wiping them away. A future where the tabernacle of God is with humankind. A holy city where those who have harmed others, where all of us who have harmed others, will know in full what it is they have done. 
or will be held accountable by the loving gaze of fierce and blazing goodness and by the holy presence of those we have harmed. We're together, perhaps in the mercy of God, we will dissolve in holy weeping, in tears that open the way to new life.